You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Turn over in your Bibles, if you will, please, to 2 Corinthians. I'm not sure this always works out this way, but it sure seems to very often happen like this. This is something my pastor taught me and a principle that I've heard for years, that where you are in Scripture is where you are in life. Wherever you happen to be reading in the Bible, studying in the Bible, it just seems to be that the circumstances of your life coincide with what the Scripture is saying. And, of course, we know that because the Bible is a living, breathing uh, text, it's not just static, of course, God's Spirit is moving through His words in the Scriptures. And so I'm excited about jumping into 2 Corinthians because 2 Corinthians seems to be that kind of moment for us. It seems to be text and, and instruction and teaching that we need to hear right now based upon the context of our lives here. Now, Second Corinthians is a letter, obviously, when you study the different uh, types of literature in the Bible, you have your historical books, you have your poetic books, and then you have these personal correspondence, these letters, right? And so Second Corinthians is a letter Paul is writing to this church. Now, we've finished up 1 Corinthians, and so just by way of reminder, you have the context that, remember, 1 Corinthians, Paul was having to answer these questions about a church that was kind of just going off the rails. They were just practicing some things. They were being influenced by the world, and he was hearing these reports of just really negative behavior and, and, and uh, things that didn't coincide with what he had taught them as the founder of the church. And so he was writing to correct them. And then there is in the intervening time between 1st and 2nd Corinthians this implication that Paul had intended to visit the church at Corinth again. And we'll deal with that in just a second here. But back to the point of it being a letter. Obviously, you know that uh, nobody writes letters. Does anybody write letters anymore, like writing thank you to grandma for birthdays and things like that? I remember that as a kid. Like, every birthday, like, whoever sent money or a card, like, the very next week, it was like, sit down and write a letter out that said thank you, and here's what I'm doing over summer break, and here's what's going on. I have the worst handwriting on earth. It was horrible. It would just take forever, and I didn't like doing it. Nobody writes letters anymore. But the purpose of a letter, obviously, can be that type of, like, wide-ranging subject where you say, and here's how the kids are doing, and grandpa's doing that, and you, know, you share all kinds of information. Or a letter can be very specific, have a purpose to it, sort of like how we write emails now. That's sort of the context you can relate it to in the way that Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. He's very specific about why he's writing. And while there may be various topics involved, there's an overarching theme, right? There's a purpose for why he's writing this letter. Now, Understanding that, that Paul is writing the letter for a very specific reason and for a very specific intent, in relationship to that, we need to understand something when we come to read the Bible. I have to remind myself of this frequently, that when I come to the Bible to read God's word, I have to remember it's not about me. When I come to read the scripture, I have to remember I do not insert myself into the scripture. Okay, what I'm trying to do is get the scripture into me. 
Because there was a content, there was a context historically to what Paul's doing here. He was dealing with a real group of people at a real point in history, at a real place geographically, who were dealing with issues. And there was relational things that were going on between Paul as a pastor and these people as the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And so we can't always immediately insert ourselves into the scripture and go, I'm going to read the scripture and go, what does it mean to me? Where am I in the text? We have to remember that the scripture is about God. It's about God's purpose and plan for his creation. It's the narrative. It's the story of God's plan of redemption for his creation. And then it's God's plan of redemption and how it relates to me. I do come into the picture, obviously, here in 2021. But we can't immediately just jump in and start appropriating everything that we read in Scripture to be applied to us. We have to understand it contextually. Now, the second thing that we need to remember when we come to the Scripture is that it's not literature for the sake of literature. The Bible is not simply a story to be read and appreciated. Right? The Bible is not this thing that when we're feeling down and feeling blue and feeling bad, we just go to as a pick-me-up, right? It's not the thing that we, we treat like sort of our daily dose of good news or our little vitamin, spiritual vitamin, right? That's not how we're supposed to treat the Scripture. The Scripture says of itself that it is living and active, right? That's what the author of Hebrews says. So the Scripture is interactive with us. That's why oftentimes you'll hear people say, hey, uh, repeat what Scripture says. Meditate on God's Word. Read it. Take it in. But, but stop and meditate on it. Consider it. Let it speak to you. Respond to it and understand that the Scriptures are not static. It's not just, again, this transactionary thing like we talked about on Sunday where I read it and receive God's blessings. It's relational. Just like how the church is supposed to be relational, God's word is relational to us. We interact with it. So to that point, I want to show you before we ever get into the specifics of what Paul's writing to the church here, I want to show you what could be considered the primary theme or the main theme that is going to thread its way throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians. Mark down 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This is what Paul says. This is where Paul's talking about the vision that the Lord gave him and what he called the thorn in his flesh. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you can latch on to that sentence that Paul repeats, that he quotes God as speaking to him about his own struggles, his own trials. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think if we get that internalized, we're going to see that theme thread its way throughout this letter. And I think that's an important thing for us to be able to do. It is to not miss the forest for the trees, as I've said before. Look at the big point of what Paul's writing about. Look at the big picture of what God is speaking through Paul in his experience with the church to how we can apply that to ourselves now. Like I said before, we're talking about this year as being the year of God's grace to us to really just latch onto that idea of grace 
That's powerful if we apply that to our lives. We can acknowledge God's grace, but if we don't apply it to our lives and take it for ourselves, then we're going to miss out on a lot of the blessings that God has prepared for us. And so that's why I think 2 Corinthians is perfect for us to be studying in this season. So let's take a look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Fairly common introduction by the Apostle Paul as he opens up his letters addressing who it's to, the the appropriate salutation and declaring God's uh, grace and peace upon them in the name of the Father and the Son. But I want you to take note of two things here in this introduction that I believe are important. Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's one that's been sent out by Jesus specifically. And look at the next four or five words. It says, by the will of God. Paul is not an apostle, one who's sent out by Jesus, because he chose to be. He's an apostle because of God's will for him. That's an important thing to understand. You and I are not necessarily Christians because we chose to be. Yes, there's an element of choice that when we get presented with the opportunity to hear the gospel and believe upon Jesus, yes, we do say, I believe. I choose to submit and surrender my life to Jesus. Yes, that's true. But the way that we even got to that moment of decision or surrender to the Lord is because God has loved us and has called us out of darkness into light, and he has foreordained us to be a part of his family. God has called us to be followers of his son, Jesus. And so it's important to understand that Paul is not an apostle simply because he had the skill set to do it or had a career desire to be an apostle of Jesus. In fact, as you know the story, it was opposite of that. He was a persecutor of the church. But he's an apostle, one who's sent out by Jesus by the will of God in the same way that you and I are called to be followers of Jesus. The second thing I want to take note of in his introduction, it says, To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. We will always do better as God's people, the body of Christ, when we remember that the church is God's and not ours. Oftentimes, just colloquially, just with local language, how we speak, we say, oh, this is my church. I get it. We all understand what that means. This is where I attend and have fellowship with other believers. This is where I go to worship God with the body. But I think we have to be cautious about that language to say, oh, this is, this is my church. This is our church. It's a subtle thing that maybe someone would listen to me and go, that's silly. We all know what we mean. Take care. Take caution in that. Because what can happen over a long period of time when you say, my church, my church, my church, you start to associate your church with specific activities, specific traditions, and specific um, elements that if God were to change those things, we might go, well, wait a minute, that's not my church anymore. We have to remember that the body of Christ is always connected to the head who is Jesus And wherever Jesus goes, and whatever he wants us to do, and however he wants us to do it, that's what we do. We're his body. We follow his direction and his instructions. The church is his. We are simply part 
of the church. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30 sort of reinforces that uh, idea that, that we're his body and he's the head. Ephesians 5.30 says that we are members of Christ's body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's why communion has taken on such a deep meaning to me. That table of thanksgiving, that fellowship with the Lord, that, that, that grace that's bestowed upon us when we have this fellowship with Christ where we take the bread and the cup and we go, yeah, it's bread and it's juice, but there's something so much more here. There's fellowship with Jesus in this. Yes, we have fellowship with Jesus in his word, in prayer, in fellowship with others in the body of Christ. But this becomes this tangible, real, but also spiritual presence of Jesus to where Paul can say, we're members of his body. We're a part of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. What explicit language to say, no, we are intimately connected to Jesus. Now, every letter contains a salutation. This is Paul's salutation, and while it has some important points, Paul also moves on very quickly to the purpose of his letter. And he starts unpacking his theme and his purpose here as he jumps into verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and mark this phrase, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction." Pardon me, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let's just take those first couple verses there, uh, verses three and four, and break that down a little bit. The theme here that Paul starts out with, that is a reflection of God's grace, as he says in chapter 12, which is sort of the big theme for the whole letter, is comfort. Paul begins talking about comfort. And if there isn't a more necessary and appropriate theme for us as the church to be talking about right now in the culture that we live in, I'm not sure what is. I think comfort is one of those things that everybody is looking for and longing for. But let's define this a little bit. Comfort here has a very prophetic tone to it, the way Paul uses it. Paul uses comfort in regard to our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The reason it has a prophetic tone is because the Apostle Paul is talking about the experience of living out the things that Jesus had already prophesied would take place to his followers. He says that if you follow me, you're going to experience tribulation. You're going to experience suffering in life. Remember, Jesus says, the world hated me, so they're going to hate you. The way that they treated me, they're going to treat you. And Jesus would encourage his disciples in several places in the gospel to remind them, listen, when you go through times of suffering, when you go through persecution and tribulation, trust that I'm there with you in that and trust that God is going to send his Holy Spirit to help you. And that's the key here for the word comfort. The word comfort is related to the Greek word paraclete. And paraclete simply means helper. Helper. That's what comfort means. See, a lot of times when we think of comfort, we think of like a mom soothing a baby who's crying, right? Or maybe someone who's in pain or discomfort and, oh, and you stroke their hair or you give them a hug, you know, and that's kind of comforting someone. 
Or perhaps like someone's in tears and you're sort of sympathizing with them. We think of that as comfort. Comfort is so much deeper and richer in this meaning. It means to help. It means to use the resources that you have to help someone's position or situation to improve. And and the thing that we see throughout Scripture is that there is an application of this help, this comfort, in all manner of situations. Sometimes it is comforting or helping someone's grief or someone's sadness or depression, or their physical pain. All of those are ways that we apply comfort or help to people. But the Bible also uses the same word as being a helper of another Christian's joy, that we're supposed to encourage each other in our joy as well and help each other to do that. Now, the perfect model for how to do this is found in the triune Godhead. Throughout the scripture, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all referred to as helpers in different contexts. As God the Father is referred to a helper, it's in things like the Old Testament where the scriptures say that he is a refuge and a shelter. The Bible describes God as a strong tower where the, where the righteous run into him and are saved, Right? It says of God that he is an ever-present help in our time of need. God is a comforter in that way. He's a helper to us. He's strong. He's that father figure who just guards and protects his children. Jesus is also described as a helper. Jesus is called the good shepherd. And like Psalm 23 describes the shepherd as he's the one that feeds us. He leads us beside still waters. He gives us good things, water to drink, food to eat. The Bible also says that Jesus is our advocate. He's the one that stands in our place at the right hand of the Father and pleads our case to God the Father. He's our helper. The Holy Spirit was described by Jesus As a helper, he says, I have to go away so that I can send the helper to you. So that as you pursue the mission that I'm giving you, the Holy Spirit of God is going to be your comforter, your helper. He's going to be your counselor. And he's going to be the one that leads you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to remind us of what Jesus taught us. And so in that way, all three members of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are helpers in this. And Paul takes this idea and says this in the same way. We are supposed to help other believers. The application of this is really um, personal for me. I remember this is already 10 years ago. My dad passed away, and we had the, the funeral, the memorial service, and This scripture, the Lord put this scripture on my heart, and so the pastor was leading the service, and then he opened up the time when people could come up and share and tell stories about my dad and all these kinds of things, and before anybody could get up to share anything, I jumped up and I read this scripture, and I said, here's the thing. God has given all of us experiences whereby he has comforted us. We've all had different tragedies in our life. It may not be the same thing. But we've all experienced different types of heartbreak, different types of tragedy, different types of sadness. And in those, we've been comforted by God. Whether it be through a scripture that we read, 
how someone prayed for us, how someone served us, how they helped us. And what Paul says is that in the way that you've been comforted, you can comfort others in their affliction. Now, I want to read that again because there's something really cool about this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. That's personal, our personal affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in, mark this word, any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We make a mistake sometimes in our pain, whatever that pain might be. We have a situation where our heart's been broken, our life's falling apart, something's going wrong. And a brother or sister in the Lord comes along and tries to encourage us, tries to comfort us. And oftentimes the mistake we make is this. We say something to the effect of, well, you don't know how I feel. You don't know what I've been through. Now here's the thing. That may be completely true. But what Paul is telling the church here is that in any comfort that God has provided for you, whatever that might be, you can use that same comfort to comfort someone else in any affliction that they may be going through. It doesn't have to be the same experience. But what we're testifying to when we share the comfort that God has comforted us with is that God is real. God loves us. God cares for us and helps us in the afflictions that we have. I may not know what it feels like to, to, to um, try, try and relate to someone who has lost a child prematurely or lost their spouse through tragedy of any kind. I may not know that. But I know that I've been in situations where God has comforted me and I can share the truth of God's real comfort to me that can and will and does comfort others who are in need of comfort. Take a look at verse 5. It says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So there is a context where we say, hey, when, when you begin experiencing things that I've experienced, I can comfort you in that as well. I've been through that already. You've seen me go through that. This is all talking about the testimony of the things that we experience as followers of Christ. Again, that's not a great way to, to attract people to Jesus, say, hey, sign up to be a follower of Jesus because you're going to go through a bunch of suffering, right? Like that's not the best recruiting tool. But there is a truth to that that we have to say, listen, Jesus has called us to reject the kingdom of this world and follow after his ideals and kingdoms so that we're not really comfortable here to the point that we endure tribulation and persecution and suffering in various ways. And Paul says that regardless of all this persecution and tribulation and suffering, verse 7, he says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul is confident, he says. He says that when you start to suffer the things that we've suffered, you're also going to experience the same kind of comfort that we have. Now, I want you to highlight verse 5 for just a second. It says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, 
So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. While we are supposed to comfort one another, and there's a, 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 a truth to that that we need to uh, embody as much as we can, there are certain circumstances, and, and, and God allows situations in our lives where our only consolation can be found in Christ. A lot of times when we are going through hard things, and that's such a, such a weak way of saying tribulation or persecution. It's, it's been a hard week. Well, we'll hear about how hard things can actually get in just a moment. But oftentimes we think that in the face of circumstances that are hard, that, that what we need is a change of circumstance, that we need to be comforted or, or consoled by, by different situation, different people involved in our life, different priorities. And the truth is, is that oftentimes we need to just sit right where we are in our discomfort and allow Jesus to meet us there in that place. See, remember in John 16, what Jesus said. John 16, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There are certain situations where only Jesus is going to be the one who can actually bring comfort to your situation. Now, we as the body of Christ, we are supposed to do our best to comfort one another and endure persecution and tribulation so that God meets us and that we can share that experience with others and comfort one another. But understand that there are seasons where we sort of start resembling Job, where even our friends who are trying to come and comfort us, they're just worthless counselors, like it says in Job. And the only one that can actually bring us comfort is God when he shows up and says, everybody else, just be quiet. I got some things I want to tell you. Jesus is our ultimate comforter in those moments because he has endured everything that we've experienced. Hebrews says that we have a high priest who's been tested in every point that we have. And that's not to say that he was dealing with the same technology we have or the same world circumstances in the sense of our context, but everything's basically the same. It's all the same emotions, jealousy, anger, hatred, right? It's all the same temptations, lust of the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life. All those things are universal. Jesus experienced, was tempted by all those things, and resisted and overcame. He overcame the world, and therefore, and thereby, he can comfort us in those things. Take a look at verse 8 now. Let's move forward. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We don't know specifically what this is, although Paul may reference back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of some things that they had to endure. And some scholars think that he was using figurative language to sort of ex exaggerate this idea that they were afraid for their lives because of like wild beasts tearing them limb from limb kind of an idea. Um, but we don't know exactly what it was that Paul and, and his fellow uh, uh, missionaries were experiencing in terms of affliction. But here's what he says about it. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. 
On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We need comfort because there are moments in our life where we feel like we are in mortal danger, and we may very well be. Paul says we were afraid for our life. We felt like we had the, the sentence of death upon our lives. But God delivered us, is what he says. He says, we were so burdened by this that we had received the sentence of death that that it caused us not to rely on ourselves, but on God, mark this in verse 9, who raises the dead. We as, as, as 20, 21 Christians, we don't think about resurrection enough. We think about the cross of Christ and his resurrection, right? We think about his resurrection giving us life and him being alive. But we don't consider enough our own resurrection. In the Bible, there's so many stories about God bringing people back to life. He's a God of life, not death. And there are so many examples of God resurrecting and giving life back to people. Jesus being the ultimate example because he's alive forevermore, the scripture says. But Paul makes reference to this, knowing that this God who can deliver us, he can resurrect us. It's sort of like what Abraham was doing with Isaac and sacrificing his son on, on the mountain. That, that even if I sacrifice him, because God said to, and I'm going to be obedient, he goes, I believe in a God who could raise him back up to life. Where does that concept even come from, right? In an Old Testament sense. There was this knowledge that, there, that God can give life even in the face of death. Now, here's the, here's the application for us in this. Paul says, we've experienced tribulation so much so that we thought we were going to die. We had the sentence of death upon us, but we believed in a God who could raise us from the dead. And, and, and he, says, he says that he delivered us from that deadly peril. He will deliver us, meaning we're probably still in deadly peril. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Sort of reminds me of, of the, the three men, the three young men, right, in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They said, we're not going to conform to your ways, O king. We believe that God will save us, but even if he doesn't, he's still going to save us ultimately, right? That's the kind of language Paul is using, but here's the thing to consider. If we never have pain of any kind in our life, how else are we to experience comfort? If we never experience need, real need of any kind, how else can we experience provision? And if we never pray earnestly and with true belief, how else can we expect deliverance? It's this paradigm and this paradox that, that is uncomfortable for us. And I think one of the reasons that, that in America specifically, we don't see as much miraculous movement of God's Holy Spirit in people's lives and churches, it, it, it's because we're a really satisfied people. We're already a people that are very comforted. We're comfortable. 
there's not a whole lot of real, true struggles like we feel like we're risking our life when we walk out the door every morning, so much so that we need to trust God to bring us home safely at night. Yeah, we, we, we get in cars, we pray God get us there safely, all those kinds of things. That's true too. But I mean this kind of peril, this kind of, of uh, tribulation, we just don't experience that. And so all these churches that, that are now prone to entertainment, whereas the church that we see in the scripture was all about God's miraculous power being shown through his church, it's because there are people who are content. They're comfortable. And while I'm not a, a proponent of saying, hey, we need to pray for persecution in the church, we need to pray for tribulation, that's not what I'm saying exactly. I think that if we live in such a way that we put Christ first in our life, then we're going to start experiencing some of those things. And they are to be rejoiced in and even welcome because of the comfort that God says he's going to provide either through his people or by Jesus directly or the Holy Spirit directly to us. I've talked about it before, but in, in other places in the world where the church is exploding... They have some real expectations as the body of Christ. They look at the scripture and go, this is who we're supposed to be. We take the word of God seriously. We take prayer seriously. We expect persecution. And as a result of that, we expect miraculous things to happen. That's a powerful testimony. That's where we see revival happening in the world, where people's hearts are being turned to the Lord. I hear preachers all the time talking about revival in America and take America back for God and all these kinds of things. And I don't mean to be cynical about that, but I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen until we're in positions where we don't have the ability to buy our way out of a jam. Where we don't have the ability to pound our fists and say, the politicians are supposed to do what we're supposed to do. What we tell them to do, rather. Go to any communist bloc nation from the past 50 years, they didn't have those choices. They didn't get to tell, you talk about the government, boom, you're done. You're, that's problem solved. You're gone. Think about North Korea right now, right, and what's happening there. It, it's just, it's tragic. They are human atrocities or crimes against humanity. But those are the places where the gospel is just proliferating, where it's just being reproduced in ways that are biblical. That's a powerful image. Now, I want to jump into what Paul says here in verse 11 and spend a little time unpacking this. He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Why does prayer make a difference? If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all of those things, all the omnis, if he is that, why would prayer make a difference? Stop and consider Jesus' prayer. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, here's the phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, it teaches us that we rely not on our will or our desire, but on God's will in all things. Jesus was faced with death, painful, excruciating death. 
And what did he pray in the garden the night before he was crucified? Father, if there's any other way, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. If there's any other way. God, if you can come up with any other plan for us to redeem all of your creation, to make an eternal sacrifice for them on their behalf, let's do that. And he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Prayer leads us into God's promises. Prayer does not lead us into attaining the things that we want from God. God has already established his will. He's already established his promises. He's already established what our purpose is in this life. Prayer brings us to the reality of God's promises, not the things that we want from God. I've heard it said this way. See if this resonates with you. His will will be done whether I pray or not. But his will will not be done without prayer because he has chosen to make prayer indispensable. I often speak of God's economy versus the economy or system of this world. God's economy traffics in prayer. Prayer is what God values. Our currency, right, is the American dollar. So when we want something, we get enough money, we go pay for it, right? That's the economy that we live in. God's economy is prayer. That's how we interact with him. That's how we get to the purpose of our life. Now, could God just do whatever he wants at any point? Yes, of course, But for whatever reason, perhaps unknown to us or incomprehensible to us, God has established our relationship with him through prayer. So much so that Romans chapter 8 tells us that when we don't even know how to pray, who prays for us? The Holy Spirit. When we don't even know how to relate to God, when we don't even know how to move towards his promises or his favor or the things that he has planned for us, The Holy Spirit, God himself, intercedes on our behalf in ways that we just can't. God's economy traffics in prayer. And so a heart, a mind, a will that turn towards God and surrenders authority and power and glory to him and to him alone in our prayers, that mind, that heart, that life will be settled it will be confident, and it will be comforted. That's what we see the example of Scripture showing us in in how and why we pray. And Paul says this here. He says, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What's the blessing? The blessing is life that God delivered them from the sentence of death, that they were afraid that they were going to die. God delivered them. And the reality that Paul speaks of is that the reason God delivered them is because people were praying for them. And that's powerful. It's a powerful conviction for us to understand. Something to remember in this theme of comfort here in this first part of the letter it was a real necessity, as we'll see later as Paul sort of reveals his, his resume, his ministry resume to us later on in, in the letter. 
And he talks about all the things that he went through. I mean, real danger, real persecution. It's the place where he goes, yeah, we were afraid for our life for this reason, and we were afraid for our life for that reason, and we were in the ocean for a couple of days, and I had a bunch of shipwrecks, and then a snake bit me, and then, you know, all these other things. You know, like, he had all these things that, that took place to him and, and that were done to him that were real danger, right? And so Paul could speak authoritatively about this comfort, And we need to dig into that because who knows how how long it's going to be until we are truly being persecuted. Again, I said I'm not praying for that to come down upon us, at least not in a way that I want recorded or repeated. But in the back of my mind, in my heart, there are these moments where I go, man, what would it be like if we picked up and we moved to some place where it's a danger to be a Christian? It's dangerous to share the gospel there's some weird little thing in my brain that's just like, yeah, that'd be the place to go. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that, right? The truth is, is that that could happen anywhere at any time. You don't have to go to some far-flung location in the world. Right here, right now, in Oregon, in the United States of America, who knows how long it is until Christians are truly persecuted. We need to pray for the endurance and the strength and, and the devotion to stand strong in the face of those things. How we get to that level of submission is interesting. John Calvin said this, we are not brought to real submission until we have been laid low by the crushing hand of God. I think oftentimes why the church is so weak here in America is because of the lack of devotion the lack of people saying, I value Jesus and his gospel above everything else, and therefore I'm willing to sacrifice my time, my talents, my treasure. The reason they haven't gotten to that place of submission or devotion is quite simply because they haven't yet been crushed by the hand of God. Who is it that we see that has the strongest faith, the deepest, most evangelical uh, uh, witness? It's the people who are struggling with cancer. It's the people who, who are getting the stage four report where they say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you. All of a sudden, that believer, that person who is perhaps nominal in their faith at some point, all of a sudden gets the Holy Ghost and starts telling everybody about Jesus because they're experiencing this crushing by God. And so there is a sense of just saying, Lord, whatever you want to take from me, Whatever you want to do. You realize that's the most dangerous prayer in the world? God, just just do whatever you want with me. Half the time when we pray that, we don't actually mean it. God, use me wherever you want except for sub-Saharan Africa. I just don't do well in tan clothes. God, send send me to wherever you want to go, but please make it Ireland. It's so cool there. It's a dangerous prayer to say, God, do whatever you want with me. Because the truth is, he may absolutely crush you to the point where you despair for your life, but then God faithfully restores you. He rescues you. He brings you comfort, perhaps in ways you never experienced. One other thought on this that we have to consider and I'm guilty of this. I have, to, I have to confess this. It's easy for me to look at someone else's life and go, oh, man, 
if I could only be in Croatia right now, like my buddy James just delivering Bibles to, to places, like that would be great. If only I could be, you know, a missionary someplace else or, or, or whatnot, you know, like we, we can romanticize those things. And we can sort of demean the place that we are right now and go, nah, this is fine, I guess. But man, God doesn't seem to really be doing anything here in terms of revival and, and Bibles getting out. My point is this. I was listening to a, a, a pastor speak the other day, and here's what he said. God has not given you the grace to live someone else's life. He's given you the grace to live your life. That's powerful. If I'm looking at somebody else's life, somebody else's mission, somebody else's calling, and I I identify that as somehow more romantic as a Christian or more exciting as a Christian, and I try and attempt to do what someone else is called to do, I'm going to fail miserably. Because God has not given me the grace to live Billy Graham's life. God has given me the grace to live my life, to take what he has put in front of me and to entrust myself to him to do what he has called me to do. Let's jump through here, verse 12. We'll move forward and try and get as far as we can. Paul says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, or you could insert the word holiness there. There's debate on which word it is, but the truth is, is that it's, it's all about this second part. We, d- we conducted ourselves in the world with simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul has to do something here that he's done frequently, specifically with this church. There's just this odd relationship between the Corinthians and Paul. Paul has to defend the sincerity of his ministry and the authority of his ministry with this church in particular. He has to sort of reiterate, almost embarrassingly so, that he wasn't there to take advantage of this church, of this local body of Jesus Christ. But rather, he was there to build it up. And sometimes, while uh, difficult, But still loving, he had to sternly correct this church. But apparently what was happening was that this church had perhaps encountered other pastors, other preachers, other people with perhaps different gospels, or other people who were attempting to imitate Paul in his ministry, but weren't so um, effective or faithful in that to the point that they, in relationship to Paul, started to question Paul and question the sincerity of his ministry. And we'll see one of the reasons why in just a little bit, because Paul wasn't actually able to show up and come to them in person. There's a reason why. But because of that, the Corinthians were like, come on, Paul, why are you being so wishy-washy? You told us you love us, and you have all these instructions, and you want to correct us, but you can't even show up when you say you're going to show up, right? But Paul has to here reassert his authority and his sincerity to say, listen, we dealt with you with godly sincerity. We lived simple lives. We pursued holiness, not by earthly wisdom, 
but by the grace of God. And he says, and supremely so towards you. We did this to you, perhaps even more so than we had to do to other churches. But the reason that he says we want to do this, the reason that that we want to engage with you, the reason why we want to correct you if need be as a pastor and and express the type of love that a father has for his children and and perhaps have to uh, 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 discipline them when they've been disobedient He says, it's because on that day of judgment before the Lord Jesus, you're going to see that we served you faithfully. And you're going to boast about us in the same way that we're going to boast about you, our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to stop there just because there's there's enough there to talk about next time and, and make our way through. But it's a good place to end because what we see is Paul's love for the church. And you'd think, okay, Paul, this church, they're questioning your credentials. They're questioning your authenticity in ministry, and they're questioning the instructions you've given them in the past. And Paul has to reassert and say, no, this is the, we, we're sincere. The things that we saw Jesus do in us, we're doing to you In the afflictions we've experienced and received comfort, we're going to comfort you. Paul reasserts this in what we see, even in the face of the previous letter, having to sort of nail down on the church to go, no, this is not acceptable behavior. What we see is the gentle, loving Pastor Paul making the connection with his people to say, I love you, and even if I have to call you out and discipline you a little bit, it's because just like a father loves a child and does what's best for the child, including discipline, maybe a hard conversation we have to have, but it's because I love you that I write to you. And he'll explain further why he wasn't able to come in person, but we'll take a break at that point for the night.